next to present his defense case was Ernst Kaltenbrunner. He was the highest-ranking SS official to be tried at Nuremberg, and one defendant crucial to solidifying the case in regards to crimes against humanity. To many in the courtroom, Kaltenbrunner gave the impression of the definitive Nazi officer, a tall, steely, overly confident and imposing figure whom journalist Rebecca West described as resembling a vicious horse. He had allegedly oversaw the Holocaust personally and was said to have directed and ordered the concentration camp exterminations. Welcome to Smokefilled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities, Part 4. Unlike his previous co-defendants, Kaltenbrunner's counsel opted to try and orchestrate a reverse testimony of sorts. Instead of trying to portray him in a positive light, his lawyer, Kurt Kaufman, instead chose to try and appropriate the prosecution's line of attack for himself. He hammered away at his own client with what he thought were the toughest questions. This was so his client could deflect and explain under friendly fire and this hypothetically left the Allied delegations with nothing left to ask. And though a bold strategy, it ultimately fell flat. Kaltenbrunner repeatedly shifted his blame onto the deceased Himmler and claimed that, in light of his supreme authority, he was largely relegated to his role as intelligence chief. He claimed he was not aware of the camps, the Holocaust, or the use of slave labor as a means to prop up the German war machine. In essence, he was arguing that he was an intelligence chief who was unaware of mass extermination. And upon cross-examination, much of what he proposed was gradually destroyed. Prosecutor Harlan of the American delegation, he provided the court with three eyewitness testimonies placing Kaltenbrunner at Matthausen camp. He was seen to be laughing loudly as he inspected the gas chambers and personally approved of various execution methods that were demonstrated before his very eyes. He vehemently denied the events ever took place. Kaltenbrunner was then presented with a signed letter informing a city official in Vienna that he was deporting 12,000 Jews for military construction efforts. Again, the SS chief denied knowledge and suggested that his signature must have been forged for some nefarious purpose. More revealing than the signed and named pile of documents linking Kaltenbrunner directly to Nazi war crimes was his witness, Camp Commandant Haas of Auschwitz Camp. Perhaps unaware as to the gravity of the situation, or maybe expecting leniency out of his unabashed honesty, or further still, somehow convinced that the trial wouldn't amount to much, Haas gave the most unapologetic and grimly illuminating testimony of the entire trial. He recounted and admitted to the willful and planned extermination of the Jews, of medical experiments performed by Joseph Mengele, and of the necessity of killing children who entered his facility. Haas's testimony shocked and appalled the courtroom. He went on to explain how, quote, I commanded Auschwitz until December 1st, 1943, and I estimate that at least 2.5 million victims were executed there by gassing and burning. 
and at least another half million succumbed to starvation and disease, making the total about 3 million dead. This figure represents about 70 or 80 percent of all persons sent to Auschwitz as prisoners, the remainder having been selected and used for slave labor in the concentration camp industries. The final solution of the Jewish question? Well, this meant the complete extermination of all Jews in Europe. I was ordered to establish extermination facilities at Auschwitz in June of 1941. At that time, there were already in the general government three other extermination camps, Belzec, Treblinka, and Wolzec. These camps were under the Einsatzkommando of the security police and the SD. So I visited Treblinka to figure out how they carried out their exterminations. The camp commandant at Treblinka, he told me that he had liquidated 80,000 people in the course of a half year. He was principally concerned with liquidating all the Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. He used monoxide gas, but I did not think that these methods were very efficient. So when I set up the extermination building at Auschwitz, I used Zyklon B. Zyklon B was a crystallized Prussic acid which we dropped into the death chamber from a small opening. It took from 3 to 15 minutes to kill the people inside, depending on the climatic conditions. We knew when the people were dead because their screaming stopped. We usually waited about a half an hour before we opened the doors and removed their bodies. After the bodies were removed, our special commandos took off the rings and extracted gold from the teeth of the corpses. Another improvement we made over Treblinka was that we built our gas chambers to accommodate 2,000 people at one time, whereas at Treblinka, their 10 gas chambers only accommodated 200 people each. And the way we selected our victims was as follows. We had two SS doctors on duty at Auschwitz to examine the incoming transports of prisoners. The prisoners would be marched one by one to the doctors who would then make on-the-spot decisions as they walked by. Those who were fit for work were sent into the camp. The others were sent immediately to the extermination facilities. Children of tender years, they were hastily exterminated since by reason of their youth, they were unable to work. Still another improvement we made over Treblinka was that the victims almost always knew that they were about to be killed. But at Auschwitz, we endeavored to fool the victims into thinking that they were going through a delousing process. Of course, frequently, they realized our true intentions and we sometimes had riots and difficulties due to this fact. Very often, women would hide their children under the clothes, but of course, when we found them, we would send the children in to be exterminated as well. We were required to carry out these exterminations in secrecy, but, of course, the foul and nauseating stench from the continuous burning of bodies permeated the entire area. And all the people living in the surrounding communities, they knew that the exterminations were going on at Auschwitz." Unquote. This testimony rattled and disgusted the courtroom. Here was a man essentially bragging about the wanton slaughter of millions and increasing efficiency of the execution process. Documents were then admitted that showed these orders most certainly came from Kaltenbrunner's SS office and then handed off to Heinrich Muller, head of the Gestapo. It was then Muller's duty to hand them over to camp commandants for immediate acknowledgement. Kaltenbrunner's fate was all but sealed, and the defense moved along to its next defendant. Following the damning proceedings against Kaltenbrunner was the spiritual grandfather of the Nazi movement, Alfred Rosenberg. He was a founding member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party and authored the book The Myth of the 20th Century in 1924. 
It was a poorly cobbled together collection of Aryan mysticism, Nietzschean anti-modernism, and neo-Buddhist ideas a la Schopenhauer. In it, he argued for the racial supremacy of the Aryan peoples, who had throughout world history built up great civilizations, but were constantly under threat from Jewish influence. He additionally argued for a form of positive Christianity, where he supposed that Jesus was in fact an Aryan whose teachings were deliberately corrupted by the Apostle Paul. His grandiose and conspiratorial version of history was one replete with overt falsehoods and an appeal to anti-Semitism. He cited Judaism as a conscious force working against the Nordic peoples who sought to destroy their culture through alien ideals, virtues, and media. Far from his beloved typewriter, Rosenberg was now on the stand being charged with all four counts of the indictment. He had been the intermediary between Hitler and the fascist factions within the Norwegian government who encouraged the takeover of their country. Rosenberg was in charge of the looting of cultural artifacts from occupied territories and claimed in court that his crimes were merely a way of preserving them from ultimate destruction. For of course, he was obviously going to return these items once the war was settled. Unfortunately for him, the prosecution was mainly concerned with his role as Minister of the Occupied Eastern Territories. He adamantly asserted that his role was purely within the realm of civil law and that Goering and Sokol were the real officials in charge of these areas. Furthermore, he claimed that he was against the measures being taken against the Eastern European peoples and if it were up to him, he wouldn't have ordered any of it at all. So despite his long-winded rantings about Aryan philosophy and the necessity of a firm will against the encroaching dangers to the German people, the prosecution stuck to the facts and linked him directly to his crimes. In the following days, they showed how Rosenberg knew of the atrocities being committed within his sphere of rule. Evidence showed that he openly discredited the rules of land warfare and permitted his subordinate organizations to carry out the Fuhrer's plans. He was additionally shown to be the mastermind behind plundering Eastern Europe of its art, food, artifacts, raw materials, and treasure, all of which were destined for Germany. His own words were reflected back on him in a speech in which he proclaimed that, quote, the job of feeding the German people stands this year. We see absolutely no reason for any obligation on our part to feed the Russian people with the products of our acquired surplus territory." Unquote. It was additionally shown that his direct subordinates carried out the mass killings of Jews and that in signed directives, cleansing the eastern territories of the Untermensch was critical to ultimate victory. And in the final, and devastating blow to his case, his signature appeared on a directive from June 14, 1944, wherein the arrest and deportation of 40 to 50,000 youths aged 10 to 14 was ordered for shipment to the Reich. Waxing philosophical did nothing to aid Rosenberg's cause and only made him appear naively condescending towards a courtroom full of deaf ears. After defendants Frick and Frank had their turns at defense, it was now time for Julius Stryker to present his case. One of the most notable figures during the trials for being distinctly unapologetic, ardently anti-communist, physically interesting, and brazenly anti-Semitic. Stryker was an unrepentant Nazi who headed the propaganda newspaper Der Sturmer. Shaven bald with a Hitlerian mustache, he was an odd and outgoing man who was easily the loudest and most obnoxious defendant seated in the dock. Indeed, during his incarceration within the Palace of Justice, he was known for exercising nude, drinking from the toilet, and showing his fellow inmates the results of his almost nightly wet dreams. He held himself as a sexual creature bent on exposing the great Jewish conspiracy afflicting the world and threatening Aryan livelihood. In late April of 1946, the prosecution was presented with the daunting task of trying to convict Stryker on counts 1 and 4 of the indictments. 
His guilt on either count was not as apparently obvious as it had been for the previous defendants. For though there were literally mountains of documentary evidence that he wrote, edited, approved, and published, he was not a national political figure and kept himself purely within the realm of media. The American team's job was to prove that through the publishing and dissemination of his literature, Stryker created the groundwork for the initial subjugation of the Jews, and that the dehumanizing effects of his newspaper led Germans to devalue Jews as people and created a mass psychology justifying the violence and theft of their property and persons. Here is an example of the writings in Der Sturmer. Alongside a cartoon of a comically long-nosed Jewish man with a bundle slung over his shoulder, reads, quote, This is how he came to Germany. They all looked like this when they came from the East, but things quickly changed. They stuck their crooked noses into everything. They took over everything and before long, they were in charge. Their goal is to establish Jewish world domination. It is therefore absolutely necessary that each German learns the true face of pan Jewry, so that he can understand how great the danger is that threatens our people from this race. Comrades, Der Sturmer educates you about Jewish racial laws. Read it and you will soon be persuaded that the Jews are our national misfortune." Unquote. Stryker immediately set off his portion of the proceedings with his unique and stubborn flair. He attempted to relieve himself of counsel because he thought that Hans Marx was an inadequate lawyer for his defense. But despite his protestations, Chief Justice Lawrence ordered Marx to stay the course and trudge on through through the presentation. Upon being questioned, Stryker admitted to having ordered the demolition of a synagogue in Nuremberg in his minor role as Gauleiter of Franconia. He also admitted to visiting the Dachau concentration camp but only to provide a few of the inmates a Christmas dinner meal. And finally, he claimed that he only learned of the final solution upon being interred by the Allied forces. His counsel affirmed his stated beliefs that the whole point of his newspaper was to have the Jews removed from Germany and sent to their own country. He used the Balfour Declaration as proof of this belief. When asked if he could be accused of treating, in a biased way, only those qualities of the Jews that appear negative, he answered, quote, I think that this question is really superfluous here. It is perfectly natural that I, as an anti-Semitic person, and I, saw the Jewish question, was in no way interested in that. Perhaps I did not see the good traits which you or some of the others see in the Jews. This is possible. But at any rate, I was not interested in investigating as to what particular good qualities might be recognized there. Unquote. The cross-examination was one of shock and disbelief by the onlookers. At being confronted with the materials he circulated throughout Germany, which included pornographic depictions of Jews with German women, incitement to violence, encouraging anti-Semitism, denigrating Jewish people as a subhuman plague, and mythologizing Hitler to Superman status, Stryker simply agreed. He defended his work as being the unabashed and uncomfortable truth in a world blinded by Jewish pollutants. Much like Goering, he continuously played semantic games with the intentionally vague but nonetheless obvious language within his newspaper. When asked about whether his obsession with the Jewish question was one of political expediency or of governmental propaganda, Stryker's final utterance before the tribunal was as follows. Quote, 
If the laws which in the future should make impossible sexual intercourse between different races, that is to say, it became law, then it would make the public realize that to be a Jew is not a point of religion, but of a people and a race. I helped create that basis. But mass killings were not the result of the Enlightenment, or as the prosecution says, incitement. Mass killings were the last acts of will of a great man of history, one who was probably desperate because he saw that he would not or could not win." Unquote. In a brief and final witness testimony, Stryker's wife appeared before the court. Her lone addition to the proceedings was to attest to the idea that Julius had never left their rural farm throughout the duration of the war, and that he only occasionally wrote articles. She even recounted a story wherein her husband personally scolded propaganda minister Goebbels when he showed up at the farm unexpectedly. She was adamant that he was a media man and had nothing to do with the party functions, the war planning, or the war itself. And with that, his counsel rested the case. Defendants Carl Denitz and Eric Radar were next on the docket. We will look at these cases simultaneously as they provide some insight into a couple of the more successful defense cases presented at the Nuremberg Trials. Radar and Denitz were both high-ranking men of the German War Cabinet who served as Supreme Commander of the Navy, Radar for the first half of the war and Denitz for the second. Both men were charged with counts 1, 2, and 3 by the tribunal. The prosecution's cases largely revolved around the idea that both men had conspired to and conducted the planning and execution of aggressive warfare on the high seas. In light of the poor defenses being leveled at Nuremberg, Denitz was fortunate to have sought counsel by the shining star of Otto Kranzbühler. He was understood by all attending to be a brilliant legal mind who impressed the tribunal with his accuracy, compelling argumentation, and deep knowledge of his clients as well as the materials presented. Before the defense cases had even begun, Kranzbühler requested of the judges that a list of questions be sent to Admiral Nimitz of the American Navy. The British delegation objected as they foresaw the beginning of a tuquoque line of defense that would put Allied naval practices under the microscope as well. And just for clarification, a tuquoque defense is an informal fallacy that intends to discredit the opponent's argument by attacking the opponent's own personal behavior as being inconsistent with the argument's conclusion. This would become problematic because an openly accepted juxtaposition of tactics and strategies by all the World War II belligerents could potentially open up a legal Pandora's box in which the Allies would have to justify their own actions as well. For as noble and necessary as their conduct allegedly was, in hindsight, they were not totally innocent in regards to some of the charges they were now leveling at the defendants. The tribunal judges largely agreed with the British protestations, but Kranzbühler convinced them otherwise. He insisted that his intentions were not to formally accuse the Allied forces of equal criminality, but rather to have Nimitz clarify his understanding of the London Submarine Protocol of 1936. This would in theory provide a reasonable interpretation of whether or not Denitz and Radar were guilty under charges 1 and 3. As Kranzbühler argued, the aforementioned protocol mandated that submarines could not open fire upon merchant or civilian vessels without fair warning that would allow the occupants ample time to safely escape. Denitz and Radar were both adamant in their statements that the British and American merchant ships had both engaged in battle with the German U-boats and additionally used communications equipment to relay positions of enemy ships to Allied command. If this was true, as Kranzbühler asserted, they had officially forfeited their civilian status and were justifiable targets for the German ships. His defense asked aloud whether or not international naval law had evolved during the course of the war. In the first weeks of May 1946, 
Dinit started his testimony and placed heavy emphasis on the fact that he was merely a captain at the outbreak of the war and thus could not have possibly been involved with high command discussions about conspiracy to wage aggression. He even noted that during the Norwegian campaign of 1940, one in which Hitler had ordered a heavy naval presence and assault because of the geography of the country, Dinitz was too low ranking of an officer to even be asked his opinion by an admiral. He furthermore went on to outright deny the charges that he had ordered U-boat commanders to execute the crews of sunken vessels in the Atlantic Ocean. Kranzbuehler had him cleverly split the difference between opponents still on the ship and the men who were defenseless in the water. He stated before the courtroom that this difference was, quote, a matter concerned with the ethics of war and their implementation should be rejected under any and all circumstances, end quote. And when cross-examining the formal naval commander, Maxwell Fife made little headway in securing details about the infamous commando order, which Dinitz was alleged to have handed down. This was a high forces command decree, which stated that any commando forces captured during the war were to be handed over to the security forces for summary execution. But Fife did gain a little momentum when he faced Dinitz with a memo he had written concerning labor being used at German dockyards. He admitted that he had not thought or cared about who or where the labor came from so long as he was able to utilize them for his branch of war. The overt implication by the British delegation was that perhaps he was equally aloof of the Hague Convention and the laws of war. Shortly after their exchange, Kranzbuehler received his sworn affidavit from Admiral Nimitz of the U.S. Navy. The document did indeed confirm that American ships had fired upon civilian vessels in the Pacific Theater, excluding medical and humanitarian vessels. This revelation would go on to greatly aid the defendants during their sentencing portion of the trial. For Eric Radar, the case was significantly different. He stood out among the dock of high-ranking Nazis as he had been a prominent officer prior to Hitler's chancellorship. Thus, he was painted by his counsel as being a military man without ideological commitment to the Nazis and their anti-Semitic pogroms. Karlsbrunner threw shade on Count Three by repeating his defense of Dinitz and again reminding the court of Nimitz's sworn statement. And additionally, Radar's defense counsel Walter Seemers argued that his client was unaware of Hitler's aggressive planning prior to 1939. He assumed that even during high-level talks in 1937 that Hitler was bluffing about his intentions towards Czechoslovakia in order to gain concessions. His cross-examination would ultimately reveal that Radar had insisted that Hitler consider invading Norway with his naval forces as a means of preemption. He argued that if they had not strategically occupied Norway, that Britain would have landed forces of her own with the explicit intention of attacking the Reich. More interesting still was Radar's admission that he had in fact passed on the commando order to his subordinates. Maxwell Fife furthermore presented evidence showing that British commandos were executed by the German Navy in 1942 while he was supreme commander of the high seas. This was a damning piece of evidence that would come back to bite Raider further along in the trial. Dated August 10, 1938, a segment of Chief of Operations for Nazi High Command Alfred Yodel's personal diary. Quote, the army chiefs and myself are ordered to the Berghof. After dinner, the Fuhrer makes a speech lasting almost three hours in which he develops his political thoughts. The subsequent attempts to draw the Fuhrer's attention to the defects of our preparation against Czechoslovakia, which are undertaken by a few generals of the army, are rather unfortunate. The Fuhrer becomes very indignant and flames up, bursting into the remark that in any such case, the whole army would not be good for anything. The cause of this despondent opinion, which unfortunately enough is held very widely within the ranks of the general army staff, is based on various reasons. First of all, the general staff is restrained by old memories. Political considerations play a part as well, instead of simply obeying and executing its military mission. That is certainly done with traditional devotion, 
but the vigor of the soul is lacking because in the end, they do not believe in the genius of the Fuhrer with his plans." Unquote. These meetings with Hitler would become the planning sessions of World War II. And at the beginning of June 1946, the next defendant was one who was part of the military hierarchy from the outbreak of aggression, General Alfred Jodl. He had not originally been on the list of culprits the Allies were seeking to prosecute. But as the evidentiary record grew, so did the case against many of the defendants. Yodel was being charged on all four counts of the indictment and was seen as one of the preeminent military minds within the Nazi government. So much so that he was one of the few people on earth who could publicly disagree with Hitler and live to tell about it. Yodel's initial defense revolved around the idea that he had not been a participant in conspiring or waging aggressive war. Rather, he suggested that his role in remilitarizing the Rhineland, strictly prohibited by the Treaty of Versailles, and the annexation of Austria did not lead to bloodshed and thus could not be considered acts of war. He furthermore insisted that the invasion of Czechoslovakia was in response to their aggression and that the occupation of Norway it was a preemptive maneuver to block a British aggression campaign. He continued to assert that the Netherlands and Belgium were not actually neutral countries and that in reality they were in league with the Allies the entire time. Yodel added that the invasion of the USSR was in response to the mobilization of Soviet forces who were preparing to break the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. A bold defense attempt, no doubt, but one that in all likelihood failed considering the depth of evidence that the prosecution submitted early in the trial, including many signed, initialed, and written orders and memos he issued regarding war instruction, slave labor, and retributive violence. And despite the hard copy proof, Yodel upheld the increasingly familiar line that he was obliged to follow Hitler's orders as an honorable military man, explaining to the tribunal his seemingly questionable moral attitudes towards the war. He explained that, quote, As for the ethical code of my actions, I must say that it was obedience, for obedience is really the ethical basis of the military profession. Unquote. Under cross-examination, he was coaxed into admitting that he only attempted to persuade Hitler that Soviet political leaders should not be executed. Rather, they should be held and only executed as reprisals against enemy violence. The Soviet prosecutors went after Yodel with vigor, considering a majority of his directives were aimed squarely at the Eastern Front. They read back to him an order he issued to the German army from July 23, 1941. Quote, in view of the vast size of the occupied areas in the East, the forces available for establishing security in these areas will be sufficient only if all resistance is punished, not by legal prosecution of the guilty, but by the spreading of such terror by the occupying power as is appropriate to eradicate every inclination among the population to resist. The competent commanders must find the means of keeping order not by demanding more security forces, but by applying draconian methods." Unquote. Yodel simply sat with an expressionless stare. He was completely undisturbed by the directives he issued that cost millions of lives. He calmly retorted to the prosecutor that, quote, The principle of warfare is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I approve it as a justified measure that conforms to international law. Unquote. Upon leaving the witness stand, Yodel strode confidently away and naively assumed that he had held his own and defended his honor. Indeed, Goering and Dönitz commended his efforts and applauded his defense case. Arguably the most interesting case at Nuremberg was that of Albert Speer, chief of armaments, former architect, and a confidant of Hitler himself. Indeed, Speer claimed of the Fuhrer that, quote, I had a close personal contact with him. I belonged to a circle which consisted of other artists and his personal staff. If Hitler had had any friends at all, I certainly would have been one of them, end quote. And though Speer was being charged on all four counts, this seemed like overreach to many. Because though he had been a leading figure in keeping the military machine going, he had only become a prominent cabinet member 
1942. This immediately cast a doubt on his ability to conspire for aggressive war because it had already been going on for several bloody years. His defense attempted to paint Speer in a very positive light, one where he was more of a conscientious corporate ladder climber than a vengeful and hate-filled ideologue. Even within the confines of the prison, Speer was the de facto leader of the anti-Hitler faction among the defendants. On the other side of that opinion was Goering, who was attempting to have all the accused men present a united and resolute front during the trial. Speer attempted to persuade some of the more reasonable defendants that they could likely save themselves a death sentence and a place in history if they repented for their Nazism and admitted responsibility for their actions. Speer's counsel, Dr. Flaschner, had had his client begin by outlining the details of his ministry and how he ran his portfolio. He additionally tried to demonstrate that Speer took much care to make sure the working conditions of his labor force were not brutal and unnecessarily harsh. He additionally mounted the argument that he had repeatedly asked for more workers to maintain wartime quotas, but seeing how there was limited manpower, even when asking for German women to be included, he was forced to ask the plenipotentiary Sockel for extra workers. And where Sockel got them from was neither his concern nor question. His duty was to fulfill the office and carry out his orders. Uh, in fact, at the October 30th, 1942 meeting of the Central Planning Board, uh, you brought the subject up in the following terms, did you not? Uh, quoting Spare. We must also discuss the slackers. There is nothing to be said against SS and police taking drastic steps and putting those known as slackers into concentration camps. There is no alternative. Let it happen several times and the news will soon go round. That was your recommendation. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the Workmen stood in considerable terror of concentration camps, and you wanted to take advantage of that to uh, keep them at their work. Did you not? Es war sicher, dass das Konzentrationslager bei uns einen schlechten Ruf hatte und dass daher ein Verbringen in die Konzentrationslager oder die Speer also showed himself to be quite cognizant of the futility of the war post D-Day and after being directed by Hitler to implement a scorched earth policy on all the territories they were being routed from, Speer secretly told commanders and low-level labor functionaries not to carry out the destructive requests. He devoted a great deal of energy and personal risk to thwarting the wholesale destruction of industry and agriculture even within the Reich itself. He told the court that he had growing disagreements with Hitler and that by the end of 1944, he realized that their day of reckoning would soon be upon them. Speer stated, quote, The sacrifices which were made on both sides after January 1945 were utterly senseless. The dead of this period will be the accusers of the man responsible for the continuation of this fight, Adolf Hitler, end quote. He even went so far as to say that he was considering an assassination plot against Hitler while he was holed up in the Berlin bunker at the end of the war. He thought he could slide a gas canister down a ventilation shaft, but upon revisiting, he noticed that they had done maintenance and extended the opening far out of his reach. Visibly upset and contemptuous in the dock were Yodel, Frank, and Gehring. They were beside themselves with rage that Speer would even consider such an action, never mind announcing it to the world in a cowardly attempt to save his own skin. Cross-examination began with Justice Jackson and pressed him on the labor he employed in his effort to bolster the production of bombs, guns, and tanks. Speer admitted that he did utilize and encourage the use of concentration camp slaves and that he had no objection at the time of directing captured Jews to work in the subterranean aircraft factories. He went on to explain that he felt that the Hague Convention of 1907, 
was no longer pertinent as the reality of total war dominated the continent. With the concluding questions, the concept of responsibility was poised to Speer, not only for the war itself, but of his role in aiding and abetting its continuation and of the destruction in its wake. Speer answered that, quote, That question is a very difficult one to answer. It is actually one which the tribunal will decide in its verdict. I only granted to say that even in an authoritarian system, the leaders must accept a common responsibility, and that is impossible for them to dodge that common responsibility after the catastrophe. For if the war had been won, the leaders would also presumably have laid claim to common responsibility. But to what extent that is punishable by law or ethics, I cannot decide, and it was not my purpose to decide. End quote. Speer no doubt added a sense of humility and reasonableness to the proceedings. But would this be enough to save his neck from the hangman after the trial's conclusion? As far back as 1918, Arthur Seiss Inquart was a radical political ideologue, and his membership in a secret society named the German Brotherhood attested to this. The group's stated purpose was, quote, the liberation of the German people from Jewish influences and to combat Jewry by all available means, unquote. New members to this fraternity were obliged to make the following initiation statement once they were accepted by the Brotherhood's council. Quote, as a German man, I assure with my honor, there is no Jewish blood in my descendancy. Furthermore, I am not connected by marriage to them, and I will never have relations with one of those. I am not a Freemason, and I assure to be forever a good member of the Brotherhood. I will always represent the interests of the German people against the Jewish people. I am willing to fight the Jewish people with all my power, at any place and at any time. I promise to obey all the orders and decrees of our organization and to preserve the complete secrecy of this institution as long as I live." Unquote. The once powerful governor-general of occupied Holland now found himself in the dock seated between Speer and von Papen, dejectedly and slowly watching as his comrades were being destroyed by the prosecution. He increasingly accepted his inevitable fate at the end of a rope. Inquart was indicted on all four counts and had been a party to the Nazi expansion plans for his native Austria since 1938. Inquart's defense was a combination of acceptance of responsibility, but also of downplaying the brutality of his reign over Austria and the Netherlands. He admitted to being proud of his Dutch post because he considered their people to be proper Aryans who would eventually realize their destiny. Of course he brought in German administrators to help him run the government, but he also retained many of the personnel from the outgoing Dutch government. Inquart was noted in documentation as having ordered the deportation of around 100,000 Jews while he was the de facto leader of the occupied territory. When asked by his council what he did to mitigate the oppression of the Jews in Holland, he argued that it was largely out of his hands and that as far as he knew, they were being taken care of properly. He made a point to note that he intervened in an attempt to copycat the Kristallnacht tragedy from Germany and that it was Chief Reinhard Heydrich who went over his head to Hitler on many occasions. He claimed that Heydrich incited the Holocaust 
and expedited the deportation of the Dutch Jews in custody for extermination. He also told the court that it was Heydrich, not himself, who had initiated the series of events and that he had to ultimately bend to their will. In court, furthermore, went on to testify that, quote, I asked the court to consider that the most important and most decisive motive for me was always the fact that the German people were engaged in a life and death struggle. Today, looking at it from another perspective, the picture looks much different. At that time, if we told ourselves that the Jews would be kept together in some camp, even if under severe conditions, it was because their presence in a battle area might weaken our position. In the course of 1943, I spoke with Hitler and called his attention to this problem. In his own convincing way, he reassured me, and at the same time admitted, that he was thinking of a permanent evacuation of the Jews, if possible, from all of Europe with which Germany wanted to remain on friendly relations. He wanted to have the Jews settled on the eastern border of the German sphere of interest, insofar as they were not able to emigrate to other parts of the earth. Under cross-examination, he went on to deflect responsibility for war crimes by saying that those were largely police responsibilities for which he had no control, and that he never once ordered an execution. He admitted that he was aware of the deportations to the camps, but that anything after that was news to him. He attempted to offload an overwhelming majority of his actions, or in many instances, inaction, onto the conveniently dead and much maligned Heydrich. And his corroborating witnesses did little to aid his cause. Most dug the hole even deeper and made one wonder, what was Inquart even in control of if he didn't have anything to do with the Jewish deportations, the theft of their property, or the issuing of criminal war directives? He understood as the trial continued that his fate was already largely decided. Indeed, his primary defense was that if it had not had been for him, the Jews and the country would have had a significantly worse experience. And as Inquart left the courtroom that day, he casually mentioned to co-defendant Frisia that, quote, Regardless of what I say, my rope is being woven from Dutch hemp. Unquote. The final and notably absent defendant to present his case at Nuremberg was Martin Bormann. He was the personal secretary to Hitler and chief of the Nazi Party Chancellery. He was perhaps the closest of Hitler's friends within the final years and the one who oversaw the most appointments made throughout the Reich. He has been noted as having had near total control over domestic matters throughout Nazi Germany in the latter half of the war. Yet Bormann was not in person during the trial. It was said by several witnesses that he'd stayed in the bunker with Hitler until the final days, fleeing at the last minute before the Soviet troops discovered the hiding spot and bodily remains of the Nazi hierarchy in Berlin. Bormann's appointed counsel, Dr. Burgold, addressed the courtroom in regards to his client. Quote, Mr. President, I want to begin my case by making a very brief and basic statement. The defendant Bormann is absent. His associates, generally speaking, are not at my disposal either. For that reason, I can only attempt on the basis of the documents presented by the prosecution to submit some little evidence to prove that the defendant did not play the large, legendary part which is now, after the collapse, attributed to him. As a lawyer, it has always been much against my will to build something out of nothing, and I beg the High Tribunal to take this into consideration when weighing my evidence, which must, therefore, be extremely small in quantity. It is not negligence on my part that I present so little 
but it is the inability to find anything positive from the available documents without the assistance of the defendant himself. I come to question of whether the case against Borman can be tried at all. I have offered evidence to show that it is most likely that the defendant Borman died on 1st of May 1945, during an attempted escape from the Reich Chancellery." End quote. Prosecutor Fife motioned that, despite Borman's absence from the proceedings, he was still under the court's jurisdiction as outlined under Article 6. He noted that the tribunal shall have the right to take proceedings against a person charged with crimes set out in the charter in his absence if he is not to be found. The lawyers and judges agreed that should defendant Borman be found guilty, he would be obliged to serve the sentence handed down by the court. This was unless he was ultimately located and formally remanded into tribunal custody. In this event, he would possibly have a separate trial arranged where a new evidence could be presented if it mitigated or refuted the verdicts already handed down. In this scenario, his sentence could ultimately be changed accordingly. Thus, the mystery of the Borman death continued onward into the trial. This was the end of the individual defense cases. The former Nazi hierarchy was humanely treated, respectfully heard out, and questioned well within the law. This was a treatment they afforded precious few when the Nuremberg Palace of Justice featured a swastika as its centerpiece. The concluding segments of the trial were now to unfold. The defense cases against the Nazi organizations, the closing speeches, the deliberation by the tribunal judges, the handing down of verdicts, and the carrying out of sentences. The final chapter of the Nazi legacy was about to unfold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.